This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all-electronic self-driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, everybody, to our session today, sponsored by ACB Families and Affairs Committee. I'm Carla Rushevel, president of ACB Families, and our session today is... Um, on the from segregation to integration, uh, and it's a history uh, lesson in the integration of the schools for the blind in the country. Uh, this, as I said, is sponsored by two groups within ACB, and we are very glad that all of you are with us. I'm going to give the um, co- the beginning CEU code in just a minute, but first I would like to give Peggy Garrett, chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee a chance to welcome everyone to our meeting today. Good afternoon, everyone. It is wonderful to be here today and looking forward to this session. Um, Hope that you all will enjoy it and leave with some information that will just enlighten your history, increase your history knowledge. Um, Looking forward to it myself. So thank you all for being here. Uh, Because I know you could have been a lot of other places, a lot of other things going on. But thank you for joining us. Well, that is certainly true. There's a lot of other choices. So we are glad you are here. I want to give the opening CEU code 44530. All right. And I want, again, to welcome everyone. We do have a panel of very fine guests, guests that are going to give us a pretty clear picture of the integration of the schools. You know, in 1954, there was a Supreme Court decision that said segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. And from that point, the schools for the blind, like other schools in uh, different states, began integrating. Some some were soon, some were not quite so soon. Uh, With us today, we have um, Jan Williams, who was a student at the Kentucky School for the Blind. Uh, during that period, Jan was at KSB through, 19, uh, at the, through the end of the year 1956, um, the school year for 1955-56. Um, we have um, Kenny Jones, who is, uh, was an instructor at the school. Kenny actually came to school in 1969 as a student and he continued there. It was like he was there forever. And he was a, a, a teacher and athletic director. He worked in outreach. Kenny, if, it, if his job needed to be done, Kenny did it. And he's very active in the KSB alumni right now. We have Michael Garrett, who was a graduate of the Texas School for the Blind. And Texas uh, didn't integrate as soon as Kentucky. It was in 1965. And Michael was there during that period. And he's going to tell us about that. We have Lou Tut, who is the executive, retired executive director of the um, uh, Association for the Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired. 
and we welcome him to this discussion. And um, most importantly, we have Michael Hudson, who's the director of the American Printing House for the Blind Museum. And Michael is going to lead us in this walk through history. So I'm going to turn this time over to Michael and he will um, lead us through through this discussion. And Michael, thank you so much for doing this for us. We appreciate it and the time is yours. Thank you, Carla. So I wanna say hey to everybody out there uh, from beautiful Lexington, Kentucky. And so what I'm gonna start out with is talk a little bit about the history of segregated, racially segregated schools for kids that are blind or visually impaired. And then we're going to do a little uh, 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 question answer and talk with all four of our panelists and, and, and bring up a lot of the interesting um, history that's behind all this. So the first school for children who were blind in the United States opened in 1829. And in Boston and other Northern cities in which schools for the blind were established, Black and white children attended the same classes. In the South, however, things were very different. After the Civil War ended in 1865, the states in which slavery had been legal began to open departments for African-American children in facilities separate from the school buildings for white children. By the middle of the 20th century, there were 15 state-supported residential schools for African-American children who were blind beginning with North Carolina in 1869 and concluding with Mississippi in 1951. And thus, as one Southern lawmaker remarked, quote, color was distinguished where no color was seen, unquote. Now, ironically, in the 19th century, separate schools for African-American children who were blind was viewed as a positive social reform and was encouraged as much by black leaders, as much by black leaders as by whites. In the two decades following the Civil War, African-American leaders generally left unchallenged the existence of segregation in social programs. And when they felt denied certain benefits, such as education for black, uh, blind children, they demanded the establishment of separate programs. The Georgia Academy for the Blind responded to petitions from black churches when it proposed the quote Negro division of the Georgia School for the Blind in 1881. And it was a black legislator, Thomas A. Sykes, who introduced the bill that provided the color department for the Tennessee School for the Blind and in, Nash in Nashville. So the 10 schools founded in the 19th century were created as departments of already established schools for white children and were under the nominal rule of the white superintendent. Students were housed in separate campuses or separate buildings on the same campus. And four of the five schools founded after the 20th century, the ones in Oklahoma, Virginia, Louisiana, and West Virginia, had no ties to the white school. And as was true throughout the South, in the public schools, equipment, materials, and facilities provided for African-American children who were blind were generally inferior, and their education suffered despite the efforts of their teachers and families. And by 1945, Charles Buell pointed out that the annual reports issued by the various schools, quote, suggest to the reader that the education of the Negro is similar to that for the white students, unquote. However, after an exhaustive study of the curriculum of the schools for African-American blind children, Buell reported, 
this theory is not put into practice. He found that the color departments as a whole spent more time on manual training, that science classes suffered for lack of laboratory equipment, that textbooks were outdated and inadequate, and that instruction was formal and not practical. Um, in general, teacher-pupil ratios were higher at the African-American schools and teacher salaries were lower. African-American teachers at these schools could not attend training courses offered at segregated universities, nor could they afford to, buy, to attend similar institutions in the North. And the buildings housing African-American students were sometimes unsafe and their furnishings bare with, quote, worn furniture, chipped crockery, and faded towels, unquote. A teacher at the Negro Department of the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind recalled somewhat bitterly, quote, when a typewriter or a sewing machine got too old or broke on North Campus, they'd send it over to us. And Margaret Johnson, who attended the whites-only school for the blind in Arkansas in the 1950s, remembered, even as a child, being appalled by the conditions at the black school where the white students were bused for an annual Christmas concert. She remembered feeling bad when she learned that the white school's worn out books were sent to the color department. Quote, why the dots were so worn they could scarcely read, she said. In 1954, a pivotal ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education signaled the end of segregated schools in the United States. But the process of integrating the historic residential schools in the South took nearly 25 years and varied considerably by state. Some schools integrated peacefully with little fanfare, whereas others dealt with lawsuits and threats and protests, as did schools for sighted children. And several schools did not integrate until after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And other schools delayed even further into the 1970s. Among the first schools, sighted or blind, to be integrated in the United States in the South were the Kentucky School for the Blind and the West Virginia School for the Blind, both in the summer of 1955. And one of the last schools, sighted or blind, to be integrated anywhere in the United States was the Louisiana School for the Blind all the way in 1978. So in our program this evening, we are going to talk to four people who experienced different aspects of the desegregation process in America, both students and administrators. And we are going to start with Janet Williams, a Kentuckian who was attending the Kentucky School for the Blind in 1955 when it was desegregated. Good afternoon or good evening, uh, Janet. It's so good to talk to you again. Thank you very much. It's so my Jan pleasure to be here. Yeah, so Janet and Janet is a, uh, retired from the American Printing House for the Blind, where I work. So uh, she's known and loved very much at APH. So, so Janet, where were you born? I was born in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And you, when did you start at at the Kentucky School for the Blind? I started uh, in uh, 1949, 1950. Was that your first grade or? That was, that was in, in primer, kindergarten. They yeah. called it primer at the time. Okay. And so uh, you went to school and lived there at the uh, what was called the color department. What was, what was the building like? What was the staff like? Well, it was a three-story a three building. Uh, the first floor housed 
uh, the teacher's dining room, the student's dining room, uh, a band room, and a laundry room. The second floor was the boys' department, and the music professor lived there, and a couple of classrooms. And the third floor housed the girls' dormitory, uh, the cook's uh, bedroom, and the principal and the house mother's bedroom. So what was the staff like? What do you remember of the staff? We had three teachers. Uh, The first teacher taught uh, kindergarten or primer through uh, fourth grade. And that was upstairs. There was one classroom upstairs. And what was her name? On the second floor. What was her her name, name was Miss. Uh, the first one was Miss Crenshaw. Okay. Miss Crenshaw lasted from my um, primer through fourth grade. Okay. And then Susie Faye Kaufman uh, was my fourth grade teacher. Uh, Miss Crenshaw left during my fourth grade year. Okay. And then the the uh, music teacher was. Uh, Otis Eads. He was okay. a phenomenal band teacher. And you guys had a great band, didn't you? We certainly did. We were <laughs> uh, known all over Louisville and uh, parts of Kentucky. We traveled through uh, to different towns and and cities. I have I have heard Janet that you you didn't get the chance not to take band, right? Everybody took band. Everybody took band when I first started <laughs> school. I played the triangle at six years old, uh-huh. and at eight years old, I graduated to the bass drum, and at 11 years old, I played the baritone, baritone horn, and people thought I couldn't do it, and Mr. Reed said, if she can pick it up, she can play it, so I picked it up, and I played <laughs> yeah. for two or three years. Yeah, so and then who was the principal? Uh, Calvin Horton Calvin was Horton. the principal. Okay. Yes. And his wife was the house mother. For the, okay. Uh, right. Yeah. So it was a pretty small staff. It was. How, how many kids were going there when you were going there, Janet? Do you remember? We didn't have over uh, 10 to 12 students. So it was a small student body. Did you all have any contact with the kids from the white department? We, we did in a sense. Uh, we would go over to the white school when we needed uh, our vaccinations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. If we have to see the doctor or the nurse, and we would go there. Yes. Before the schools integrated, did you actually know any of the kids at the, in the that that were at the white department? I knew a few. Okay. A few of the little girls. Okay. Um. So, do you remember? how you found out that the two schools were going to join or do you, do you have any memories of, 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 of the process leading up to, to the schools joining? Well, um, the principal and his wife, uh, Kevin Horton and his wife uh, would often stop by my house in Bowling Green, Kentucky. They lived in Russellville, Kentucky. And so on this particular day, they, uh, told us, uh, my parents, that we were going to be 
uh, integrated uh, partially. Right. And that was in 1955. What did your parents think about it? Well, they really didn't say much of anything. Okay. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a good thing, it wasn't a bad thing. No, no. Yeah. And 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 I didn't care because all I wanted to do was go to school and learn. Yeah. I thought it was great. Yeah. So so how how did the integration that first year take place? How, how did it how was it implemented, I guess? Well, we uh, we didn't stay there the first year. We would eat our breakfast, as usual, at the uh, colored department, as, as it was called. Mm-hmm. And um, we would start over to the, to the whites, I mean, to the other school. We'd go through woods. We were about 600 feet or so apart. But mm-hmm. we had to go through woods, weeds, and briars, and all this sort of thing. So there was no uh, clear path between the two schools. There was really no a clear path. You could yeah. go by the road, you know. Haldeman, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the color school was located at 260 Haldeman Avenue. Which is a side street off of the street that right. uh, the uh, main exactly. school is. Uh-huh. Exactly. But uh, anyway, after breakfast, we would start over to uh, – to the other school and we would have our classes there and for lunch we would leave, go back to the color department for lunch we have an hour and then we go back to the white school and finish our afternoon classes so all meals took place separate precisely yes and so the only time you actually mingled was in the classroom in the classroom mm-hmm now, what what happened to the teachers from the black department? Did they? They taught. They did. They, okay. Yes, they taught at the school. Okay. Yes, they resumed the uh, grades that they were teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What happened to Mr. Horton? He taught science. Okay. Okay. And Mrs. Horton? I guess she was still the matron back at the. She was still the matron over okay. uh, over there. Yes. Yeah. Do you happen to know what happened to her after you all? Because I, I think that was your last year there, right? That was our last year. That was okay. my last year. Okay. I started in uh, fifty six, the school year of fifty six, fifty seven. I I was there from September until about November because mm-hmm. my parents moved to. Chicago, Illinois, where I continued to go to school, but I went to public school there. So that that first part of that that second year, were you actually living uh, with a yes, white? Yes, we lived. We yeah. were over. Uh, we had uh, ventured over to the school entirely. The right. White school entirely. And, and how did that? How did that go? I thought it was great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had. Uh, Separate rooms, of course, as far as the blacks, they, the blacks were still together. Right. There were three to a room, three girls to a room. Okay. Right. So, so they didn't mix any races inside the rooms, but you were there no. on the same floor. No, just the classes. Right, right. And uh, there were no problems? No, there didn't seem to be. No. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we did a program on this at the museum a few years ago. Lou was there, and 
and uh, we had a couple of other folks that to talk about this and they the 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 folks kind of talked about how they almost had to be taught that there was a difference between the white and the black students that they didn't really even understand what the difference was did do you have any memories of 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 having to be told you know why what the difference between white and black people uh, were because you know of no i uh, i didn't think anything about it yeah um all I wanted to do was go to school. Yeah. And I, when I got there, I, I knew people before I went there, before we were totally integrated. Right. I knew some, some of the teachers and uh-huh. some of the students as well. So when you got to Illinois, you were going to public school. Is that right? Yes. Were things different there? I mean, I know lots of things were different there. But, <laughs> Precisely. You know, as far as race relations, were, were, was there... Was I went to a melting pot. Okay. And uh, there weren't many black students at, at the school where I went. Uh, I went to a school where there were 3,000 students and mm, uh, probably about 50 or 75 of the students were black. So you're uh, very much in the minority. I was. As a matter of fact, when I graduated, I was the only one that graduated. I was the only black student that graduated wow. out of 350. But you had uh, been prepared, obviously, academically pretty oh, well by KSP. Right. I was, yeah. uh, I made National Honor Society, and that's all I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Was was the racial situation in 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 uh, Illinois different than in, in Kentucky? Uh, it was somewhat different. Uh, I, you know, it was, I went, you were able to participate in more things, you know, you didn't have to worry about, um, could you go this place or that place, you just went. Right. And I found that kind of different because uh, prior to, you know, being integrated, we had to do separate things and Mm -hmm going separate ways, you know. You mean in Kentucky, it was so, everything was so separate. And did that, did, was, I'm I'm trying to think of the right, how to to express this, but so is that, uh, when you look back on the way life was for you as a young, as a child and your parents, and as you look back on that, uh, do you think uh, people find it hard to believe that that's the way it was 70 years ago? I think I think they do. I think they find it hard to believe. Yeah. When I tell them that that's the way it was, oh, really? And, you know, that's their reaction. Yeah, yeah. Lots of changes. You've seen Precisely. lots of changes in your life, Janet. Right. Well, that's great. Hey, I'll tell you, Janet, I swear we could do this entire program just, just interviewing you about, <laughs> about life at the school. Uh, but we have got some other uh um, panelists here. So uh, thank you, Janet Williams, so much. I love talking to you and uh, say hi to your family for me and uh, be good. Okay. <laughs> All right. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Janet. So now we're going to go to Texas. Uh, actually, Michael, uh, Michael Garrett is an alumni of the Texas School for the Blind. And uh, Michael, is it okay if I call you Michael? Please do. Okay. Uh, you were in school in Austin when the Texas School for the Blind desegregated 
Um, was that in 65 or 66? 65. Okay, so when did you start going to the Texas School for the Blind? I started in 1960. I was a fourth grader. Okay. And 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 the the the, the neat thing about that was in 1960, I don't know if they were headed toward integration or not, but we had a brand new school, a sprawling campus with separate buildings for intermediate, you know, primary and and uh, and uh, high school. Mm-hmm. So very different from what Janet experienced, where every all the kids were in one building. Right. So when you uh, when you arrived, the just to clarify, the 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 co- was it called the color department? No, uh, they just called it. I, we had a unique situation because our school was called the Texas Blind, Deaf, and Orphan School. Mm-hmm. We called it BDNO. Okay. So you had a lot of different kids there. A variety. A variety. Mm -hmm. Not only the deaf deaf kids, but we also had some kids who were orphaned. Okay. So was there one uh, dormitory for black kids, one for white kids like that? No. No. Our school was – we were totally separated. All the kids on our campus were black. Okay. 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 But it was in Austin – but and was it close at all to the white uh, school? No. No. Okay. No. Totally other side of town. So so what were the what? So you've already described the campus a little bit. It was brand new when you got there. Yes. So what do you remember about the buildings, the teachers, the staff prior to desegregation, school life? Well, you know, it 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 it, it kind of melds itself because when you're away from home. Where you are becomes your family. Yes. And our teachers, many of them were very supportive and very protective of us. And then at and in the dorms, you know, of course you develop relationships. And of course, you know, I could tell you a lot of stories, but I was a little guy at the big boys' dorm, <laughs> so I probably got into more trouble than I should have. (laughs) But I developed some very uh, deep uh, relationships and with, with, uh, with uh, guys and girls that I'm still close to even, even today. Yeah. Now, just, just to clarify for my own self, were the kids who were deaf or hard of hearing, were they in that dormitory with you? Or was it all kids that were blind or visually impaired? Yes. Yes. We were, we were all, all together. So the only def- defining uh, uh, characteristic of the kids in your dorm was that they were all black. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So what about your teachers and staff? Uh, what do you remember studying? Uh, what uh, Obviously, all your facilities were new. So you never had a sense that you were that the school facilities were not as good or shabby or anything like that. Is that true? No, because. I I started out in public school and you had the the, the school we were in, or at least I was in, was a just a special ed class. And I knew then I wasn't really learning all I needed to learn, so I asked my mom if I could if I could go to Austin. Right. And uh and that's another long story too, but 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 one, once I got there there were things that were specialized. Uh, for me, a large print, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
they 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 taught me braille and and uh started in music and uh you know uh we had a we had a nice gym and uh got to go to PE and all those kinds of things it was like really going to school yes so you know when we talk about segregated education michael you know in 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 the blindness sense we're usually talking about segregating kids that are blind from kids that are sighted uh, but in your case, it sounds like the move from a integrated school with kids that were sighted to a, a school that was segregated that way was actually a great, was a, was a big, big positive step. It was for me and, and I'll, I'll always be, uh, positive toward the residential school model. And I know there are a lot of people who, uh, disagree, but, even even now, the experience I have with kids who come from the public school setting and go to what we call now TSBVI, uh, they form lasting relationships. They get they feel more independent. They grow more, and there's something about being in a an environment where your peers are that really helps you grow. Yes. Uh- so how did you find out about desegregation? How did you find out about your parent? How did your parents find out about that the schools are going to be, were going to be merged? Oh, they, they told us uh, at the, uh, at the end of that, that, uh, 64, 65, uh, school year, they, they told, they informed us. And, uh, so we just prepared for it over the summer. Was it anything you worried about, or you know, were your parents no, worried about not, it? No, not really. Uh, okay. You know, my parents, my parents gave me the same talk that they always did every year. You know, you go and you do your best. I, they were, they expected me to do well. Right. It didn't matter where I was. So that was that was the expectation. <laughs> so, so that I had I had the same I had the same speech. That's a gift, Michael. That's a gift that your parents gave you. You know that? Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, so um, what about – so anybody, any of your fellow students, uh, it wasn't anything that you all talked about, worried about, or anything like that. It was just going to happen. Well, we talked about it for sure. We, we, we talked about it. Uh, we, were, we were prepared. Uh, and then what they did sort of to ease us in – uh, we 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 lived on our old campus, mm-hmm. and we were bused over to to the to the to the white campus, and um, we ate lunch uh, in our assigned dorm. You know, since since by that time I was in high school, so mm-hmm. we I, I ate ate lunch in the in the eventual dorm that I would live in, uh, and. Uh, and we'd go back to uh, to, have, to uh, our, the old campus, right? At, to, in the evening. Yeah. So kind of similar to what Janet described, where they initially they they just went over for classes together. Did you did you all continue? To, did you eat meals together initially? At lunch. Yeah. At lunch. Okay. At lunch. So, at lunch, and they, and they weren't and and we didn't we weren't allowed we weren't allowed to to segregate. At the ah. table, they assigned they assigned us tables, and and you had to you had to sit with somebody that you didn't know. Yes. So how did that work out? 
worked out fine. Yeah. Work, worked out fine. You know, the, the only tension, there was a, there was a little tension, and, uh, and it, it was quickly solved because uh, they messed with one of our guys. And you know that old saying, in this fight, there are only going to be two licks passed. I'm going <laughs> to hit you, and you're going to hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> So there, so there was there was some altercations. Boys will be boys. I guess would be one way of putting that. Um, um, but it was solved inside the group, or teachers uh, uh, stepped in. So How would we, you? We know, we we solved it. We, yeah, we you solved it. Yeah, yeah. After that, uh, there was very little tension. Mm-hmm. I think in the other dorms, the, the middle school guys. I think they had a few. A few turns, but uh, basically, you had to gain each other's respect. Mm-hmm. And over time, I mean, you, you, we we all became brothers. You know, I just yes. I just talked to one of my one of my guys who who ultimately ended up being my drinking buddy in college. But anyway, we, <laughs> we <laughs> I just talked to him a couple of days ago. So, so you made friends. Deep, lasting friends. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, uh, Michael, that the blindness brought you together more than the color of your skin and social pressures to hate each other because of the color of skin? Do you think? Do, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, r- remember now, a lot of us were partially sighted, so uh-huh. you know we could see. Yes, uh, we we knew each other, uh, mm-hmm. but just like the general public, you know, you come from your background, and it, and a lot of it was because you don't know, you haven't experienced it, and so once we all experienced each other, we found out that we had more in common than we had different. Right. And so we learned to love each other for who we were. Right. Not not for the color of our skin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the staff at the uh, uh, at the color department or, or you know, whatever they called uh, your half of the campus? Uh, what happened to them? Several, several of, of our teachers went over. A few of them retired, but several of them went over. Of course, several, especially my favorite ones, uh, Miss Miss Myers, Miss Norman. Those were my ladies. I love those ladies. They went. They got to go over. Miss Myers actually taught Spanish. Okay, (laughs) funny. And she was a blind teacher. Okay. Okay. She held the respect of all of the students. Yes. Yes. Uh, You know, it's kind of counter to what happened in a lot of when when a lot of you know black schools integrated with white schools. A lot of times, the you know black black uh, administrators, you know, they might have a PhD and they ended up being a janitor, you know, in the in the county school department or whatever. That that does not seem like that that was true universally at the when the when the uh, blind schools integrated. I mean, at least the the people that I've talked to. And some of them, yeah. And then one of the one of the most notable cases that happened to me. One of our office administrators was also <clears throat> transferred over to 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 the to TSP. And my the first quarter, I was going out out of the building to, to lunch, and Miss Nelson came out and said, 
congratulations, congratulations. I said, from what? You made the honor roll. She, she was so happy <laughs> that I had accomplished that. You know? Yeah, yeah. So were, uh, were there, was there just uh, any uh, angst on the part of parents uh, when the, when the, when the school integrated on both sides yes yeah there were there were, there were some some angst there was some angst there was some skepticism uh-huh there was some some of the some of the white parents who did not want their their child or children to to live in a room with uh with with some of the black kids but ultimately i think that kind of weeded itself out so you know we we ultimately ended up rooming with each other uh, throughout the throughout the time. Michael, again, like I said to Janet, literally, I would love to interview for you for an hour and a half on this whole topic because um, there's a lot that we don't know about the way that uh, school, uh, you know, happened in 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 these separate departments. So it's it's fascinating stuff. And um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, be well. Are you are you down in Are you in Texas still? I'm still in Texas, Missouri. Okay. City, Houston. Out, outstanding. Well, thank you very much for your time. All right. So we are going to move on to Kenny Jones. Uh, and I've known Kenny a long time. Kenny was uh, a student and an administrator and literally uh, uh, everything man at the Kentucky School for the Blind. And Kenny, you started school at KSB when? Started KSB uh, eight years old in 1969 uh, as a third grader, and I graduated in 1978. Okay. So you were at KSB uh, during a pretty turbulent time in our nation's history you know we we know that we're living through a lot of social unrest right now as we as we confront issues of social justice but um what did any of that spill over uh civil rights movement vietnam all that did any of that spill over onto the campus at ksb well we were so young at that time um we really that really wasn't our focus uh mm-hmm. the, the, the you know the biggest thing i can remember um during that time was man's walk on the moon and of course uh president nixon's um uh his resignation <laughs> mm-hmm. what about the busing because louisville was going through a really pretty that's true violent busing crisis 74 75 76 did any of that uh, bleed over onto the ksb campus well not on the ksb's campus but i do have an interesting little story about that um because, you know, a lot of that, a lot of cross burnings and that sort of uh, activity occurred, you know, out in the Dixie Highway area. Mm-hmm. And um, it so happened that a friend of mine uh, lived out in that area. And I went out to stay at his house not too long after busing first began. And, um, of course my mother was very, (laughs) she didn't want me to do it, but I was determined to do it and, uh, stayed out there for about a week and had no problem whatsoever. Walked around his neighborhood, um, met 
his neighbors, even practice wrestling at uh, Pleasure Ridge Park High School out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and not a negative word said to me. Yeah. But uh, it was a turbulent time. But since, um, you know, we were on campus, uh, we really didn't have to worry about that. Now, my, of course, the, the neighborhood I grew up in, they were bust. And it was just a, uh, a horrible experience for them. I can, you know, recall the first day they got off the, the bus and you could, you know, you could tell the fear. Uh, yes. they, they definitely, but, uh, at, at KSB, no. Yeah. So there's a lot of really ugly pictures of, uh, the crowds gathered around those buses as the kids get off and you, you just marvel at the, at what adults will do. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's God awful, isn't it? Yes. Their bus was actually rocked yeah. physically. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, but you were insulated from all that living on campus there at KSB. Absolutely. So the racial, uh, uh, the racial atmosphere at KSB was was not one where you you thought about that sort of thing. Um, not from from that perspective. Now it's interesting, you know. You ask uh, the other uh, panelists kind of their experience regarding students, and and Michael, I think, summed things up very well in the fact that. You know, there were racial overtones and mm-hmm. more so when I first began as time went on. But as you begin to um, form friendships, they get to learn that there's more similarities uh, within you than differences in mm-hmm. you. Uh, mm-hmm. it, that that really uh, goes away after a while. You become, you know, it, the similarities outweigh the, the, the yeah. differences by a ton. Kenny, this is something I was trying to articulate to Michael, but really couldn't think of the way to do it. But do you think your blindness or your visual impairments drew you together in ways that your race did not? Uh, not in the beginning. No. Okay. And that is a very good question. Uh, it's an excellent question. Not in the beginning. Um, there, you know, whether a student has limited at least this has been my experience Mm -hmm. uh was my experience i don't think it's so now as much as uh when i first you know when i attended ksb but students knew that there was a difference in me racially whether they had partial vision or whether they were totally blind Mm -hmm. and they saw the difference in our race I think greater than the similarity of our blindness. But now I I really think that trend has changed. I really believe my experiences with students now Mm -hmm. is that the uh, commonality of the visual impairment draws them together Mm -hmm. more so than the race Mm -hmm. separating them. Mm -hmm. I think times have changed in that regard. Yeah. Now you were a pretty good athlete when you were at school. Uh, did that help uh, you to, you know, uh, make relationships, that sort of thing? Absolutely. I think the more that you're involved with one another, mm-hmm. um, whether it's athletics or it could be, you know, any other extracurricular activity. I think athletics does have that um, ability, though, because in athletics, um, you're a team plus you're traveling with one another, 
mm-hmm. you build a camaraderie. Uh, that definitely um, meant that definitely gave us a greater, more time together to mm-hmm. learn about one another and being, you know, a sense of teamwork together. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely formed relationships, strong relationships that I carry to this day with individuals that I, you know, participated right. in athletics. Right. What about mentors who were African-American on staff there at KSP? Did you have strong mentors? Well, there were two teachers. I know that you asked Janet what happened to, you know, the teachers from right. the color department. There right. were two teachers uh, that uh, came over to the that stayed with the school, of course, Calvin Horton, who became the science teacher, but also Bertha Horton became a middle school, high school math teacher. Mm-hmm. Now, Calvin, he, he treated me like every other student. Uh, but Bertha, oh my, she really had some high expectations of me and she would not give me any slack whatsoever. When she thought I was not working to my potential, she would call me into her uh, room and just lay the law down. Yes. Uh, as, as well as even at times punish me, uh, when I thought it was unfair that she punished me just because I wasn't working as hard as she thought I should. Yeah. So she had high standards and she held them to you, held you to Mm it. Me more so than other students. Maybe she expected more out of you, Kenny. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So, so then you, uh, after you graduate from KSB, or did you graduate from KSB? I did graduate. From you did, KSB. and then yes. so then you went to work for KSB later uh, on staff, right? Uh, yes. I after teaching in Catholic school for a couple of years, I I started uh, working at uh, KSB in 1986. So, did you how, how what was your experience as a as a young a black man on uh, working at KSB in the that would have been in in the 80s? So, what was yes. your experience like? Oh, it was great. Um, it, it, it really was. There were, uh, maybe one or two other black teachers on staff, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of course I knew most of the the teachers because they had taught me. Um, and I felt like I had an advantage over newly hired teachers because of the experience that I had, uh, with, uh, you know, just being a teacher or, or a student there. So, uh, yes, it, 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 it was, it was, it was great. And I worked in the classroom as a teacher, uh, for 10 years. So yes, those were, I was treated like any other teacher. Yes. Same expectations. Um, and, and those were some good years. Yeah. Now we, when we were talking a little bit before the, uh, the formal interview, you were talking a little bit about a, a hiring situation that, that, that was, that was a little tense, uh, um, yes. Well, and, and I didn't realize this as a student and I didn't find out about this until afterwards. But uh, and this was regard and, and this was actually happened when I was a teacher. But in in 1976, well, we went through a period when Will Evans became the superintendent, superintendent in 1973 or four, whenever that was. We went through about a two, three year period where we had no principal. Mm-hmm. They finally decided to hire a principal. And I later found out that the science teacher, Calvin Horton, you know, wanted that position. Now, the only thing I knew as a student was when Mr. Richmond Marcy, when he was hired, 
uh, Calvin Horton left and he yes. left and I knew he was bitter mm-hmm. because he made a bet to with a friend of mine. He said that he would never, ever, ever come back on that campus. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a funny little story about that is she and I walked to his house. He lived he lived on, um, you know, maybe about a quarter of a mile. Yeah, he was away. just right down the street. I've heard yes. that. Yeah. And uh, and so we went down to his house and he said, oh, you know, we talked to him a while. And he said, well, let me take you all back home, you know, take you back to school. So right. he drove us back to school and Mary, her name was Mary, the person that was with me. She opened her mouth and said, oh, you're going to lose your bet of <laughs> never coming back on campus and he slammed the brakes on he said get out and walk so he made us walk on to the campus and he was yes. on all the yes made us walk through the gate yes and Before, obviously he he felt like it had been racial i think so that's yeah. what i that was the reason why he didn't get the was. job but fortunately he did end up coming back onto the campus yeah. in 93 when we celebrated our 150th yeah. uh, anniversary. That's I've heard it. nothing but good things about Mr. Horton. So he was, um, he was a wonderful person. Yeah. Yeah. So Kenny, that actually leads perfectly into our next guest. And again, we could talk for forever and, and will in the future, but thank you so much for coming on our panel uh, tonight. And uh, we're going to move over to Lou. Uh, Lou Tut. Hello. And, uh, so, Lou, uh, you heard that story. That last story actually leads into what I want to talk a little bit about with you. And so you're a longtime school administrator. So give us a little idea, uh, just the beginning of your career. How did you get into teaching? Yeah, well, let me uh, start by saying that I'm a product of a segregated school system. Started school in D.C. in 1947, graduated in 1960. Segregated uh, education. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know uh, segregated schools from uh, my attendance at uh, all black schools uh, <clears throat> until I went to Michigan State University. So anyway, uh, I got involved in the field of blindness as a grad student at Michigan State University in 1971. Now, before that, uh, in, <clears throat> in 1964, the year before I graduated from Norfolk State University at ACBU, uh, I was a, a phys ed major and uh, we had to visit certain uh, schools to uh, look at what their phys ed programs were. And uh, I visited the Virginia State School for the Deaf and the Blind in Hampton. It was a black school. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that there were two schools until later on. Yeah. So that was my first introduction uh, to, to blindness and deafness. Uh, there were two schools on the same campus. But right. it wasn't until years later that there was the white school in Staunton, Virginia. And of course, uh, as you may know, Mike, uh, when schools uh, had to combine because the states couldn't afford to have two separate schools, that became a problem for many of the black teachers, black administrators with regards to moving two separate schools right. into one school. Well, and that would have been particularly true, Lou, in that instance, because the two schools were so far apart. They were far apart. Yeah. yeah. Hampton, Virginia, then Staunton. Yeah. They were a great distance apart. So, yeah, that, so like that, when Kentucky desegregates and the school is, you know, on the back corner of the same property, it's not, <laughs> yes. not as much of a, an issue. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. So anyway, um, 
I got in the blindness field as a as a grad student at Michigan State University, and uh, I, I visited the Michigan School for the Blind uh, as a phys ed graduate student, and it's mm-hmm. there where I thought I'd like to learn to teach blind children. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, when I told my professor that, she said, "Well, let's let's get you involved in special education and start mm-hmm. your second uh, graduate degree in special education." Right, and uh, that happened. And then now, were there story. other black faces in that in that uh, when you were in graduate school? No, there was not. It's interesting that uh, uh, I have several first in the blindness field. Not that I'm proud of that, but when I came along, uh, there, uh, because schools had integrated, there were not many black teachers or, or administrators in the schools where I worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, and what I about in your invited, graduate? What about in your graduate class? Your, in no your black students in my graduate class. Yes, uh, and yeah. there none, none. Yeah. yeah. So I came along when when uh, the um, uh, the the country was had dealt with the rubella epidemic in the middle '60s mm-hmm. when you had uh, thousands of youngsters born who were deaf blind, mm-hmm. and so Michigan was the the uh, state, the third state that had the largest population of, of births of rubella babies. Okay. And so the government gave money to Michigan and to the school and to Michigan State to start mm-hmm. a program in deaf mind education. Okay. And uh, these youngsters needed motor activity. And because mm-hmm. of my uh, experience and my uh, undergraduate degrees in, in phys ed, I was hired at the Michigan School of the Blind to teach 35 deaf blind kids motor activity. Because okay. the, the, the phys ed teachers there would not teach these deaf-blind kids. Right. That was segregation there at that school. Yes. Because they couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't see, couldn't hear, were not potty trained. They didn't want them. So yes. I taught in bedrooms and hallways these kids at the Michigan School for the Blind. And these deaf-blind kids, 35 of them, put me on the blindness map. They did. Yes. I owe it to them to this day. Those thirty-five kids because they gave you a skill. Work. They gave you a skill that was uh, un unmatched. Yes, right? it was unmatched. Yeah. And yeah. I met some wonderful professors and researchers around the world mm-hmm. uh, in in the field of deaf blindness. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I, I guess that's was, that's called taking lemonade. I mean, lemons and making it into lemonade. You, uh, and, and and that's right. And lots of sugar too. And it was very <laughs> very good. Yes, absolutely. Yes. It was. It was. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so I, I taught uh, for four years at the school, and then I became uh, the first assistant principal at the Michigan School. And some of you may be aware of uh, Jet Magazine, the Black uh-huh. Magazine. Yes. Well, I was written up in Jet Magazine in 1974 as the first Black uh, administrator at the Michigan School for the Blind. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. then it took yeah. off there. I became principal in 1978. So, Lou, let's pause for just a second. So what what was it like being the only black superintendent of a school for the blind in the country? Well, uh, it was interesting. And I'll tell you why. I also coached at the Michigan School for the Blind. And and during, uh, you know, those years, the 60s, 70s, Many coaches became principals at schools for the blind just because of their work with so many different 
blind kids. Mm -hmm. And and there was a relationship that coaches had that segued into being a principal. Relationships were very important. So because my white counterparts knew me as an excellent coach, Mm -hmm. I was accepted as an except as an exceptional principal, not because I was black, but because I was qualified uh, right. to do that job. Did and you guys so, ever did you guys ever take any of your teams south and compete against southern schools for the blind? Not when I was involved. No, okay. I was involved in, in the Midwest. It's all Midwest. Yes, it was okay. all Midwest. And then yeah. when I went to the, I should ask Kenny that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so. Uh, that that was my my segue into administration at, at Michigan, and right. I was there for for ten years. Well, if you wanted to move on and move up uh, in the field, uh, you probably had to go to another school for the blind. Yes. And so, uh, uh, talking about Louisiana in 1981, uh, I was an applicant for the superintendent's job at the Louisiana school, mm. and I and had, had only I, been. They'd only been desegregated for like three years at that That's point. That's right. Yeah. And I had a biracial marriage and that presented a problem. They couldn't hire me because there was no place my wife and I could live in the black community or the white community wow. in Baton Rouge. You wouldn't be accepted by either community. <laughs> either community. Yes. Either community. So, uh, but I got the job at the, at the Missouri School of the Blind in 1981 as superintendent there. The okay. first black superintendent. Yes, at, at that school, and uh, and, and still even, probably the only black superintendent in the country at that point. Yeah, well, there 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 was uh, uh, I forget his name at Mississippi. Okay, was a black black superintendent. Okay, there okay. were two of us. Uh, he okay. was at Mississippi. Okay, and I was the, the the only two of us during that time. Yeah, so I spent uh, you know ten years at the Missouri School of the Blind okay. as superintendent, and uh, and then from there. I so so to, were there racial issues in Missouri at all in terms of in your school uh, body or anything like that? No, I, 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 hey, hey, Lou, I know I seem like I'm just trying to poke the bear. I'm not really. I'm just curious. Yes. Uh, no, 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 not really, because um, at, at the Michigan school, um, we 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 had uh, sports activities with the Missouri school right. and with other schools in that region. So. Right. You know, uh, uh, there were there there were not. Okay. Uh, if they were, they were small. Yeah. And, and yeah. they were they were dealt with. The only issues that I had at 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 Michigan starting out, you know, I had uh, the white parents who who would call and said, I I uh, I think as Kenny may have mentioned, I I don't want uh, my my kids to date black kids yes 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 and so yes. i got calls like that uh yeah. you know which was somewhat disturbing uh, right but what we handled it we did yes yeah yeah so uh so i had a good run at, at, at the uh, missouri school of the blind and uh you know there were no issues racial issues you know to deal with mm-hmm. they had to deal with they had a superintendent who has a biracial marriage and so yes and so yes. that that even the state was concerned, not my immediate supervisor, but the state superintendent who said, I don't think this is going to work down in St. Louis. Yes. But my, my administrator said uh, uh, to the superintendent, it will work. This will work. And, and, <laughs> and, and of course it did work and worked very well. 
right uh, there at the Missouri School of the Blind. Right. And so uh, from from Missouri, um, I applied for the job at the Maryland School of the Blind uh, in in 1990, uh, and and went for several interviews as I did for all the jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, my experience and qualifications uh, led to my getting those jobs. So now Baltimore has a kind of a reputation as a tough city. Lou. Uh, oh yes, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they had a tough old bird here too. <laughs> <laughs> but but let me say this too. Going back, Mike, uh, uh, that when I came out of Norfolk State and and taught in Gloucester, Virginia, nineteen sixty five, mm-hmm. I taught at a at a at a black school K through twelve. Mm-hmm. I was part of integrating the schools in Gloucester, Virginia. In 1968, when I was one of three black teachers, moved to the white high school in in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that took place before I even got into the field yeah. of blindness. Yeah. yeah. So that happened. Yeah. But anyway, I, I uh, came to Maryland in 1990 and served as superintendent and president of the Maryland School for the Blind mm-hmm. uh, in, in 1990. Of course, in 1981, uh, when I went to uh, Missouri, that's when I got involved with APH because you had to be a superintendent to be involved with APH. Well, That's there right. was Burt Boyer, my friend, yes. who, was at, uh, uh, who had gone to uh, uh, Kentucky school. Yes. And I had lots, lots of friends and lots of colleagues uh, around the, 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 the country and around the South who mm-hmm. knew me and knew of those with whom, you know, mm-hmm. I'd worked. Bill mm-hmm. English, Will Evans, mm-hmm. uh, you name them, you know. Right. Uh, I was all a, a big part of them, and then I was I was elected as the president of the Council of Schools for the Blind. Yes. So I yes. led Cosby for mm-hmm. for uh, four years uh, as well. So my experiences were were, were excellent in, in the schools where where I worked, and uh, then I left uh, uh, the 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 Maryland school. I I sort of retired and moved to Colorado, had a daughter in Colorado. And she said, dad, why don't you move out here? Well, Colorado was looking for a principal and I thought it might be neat to work at a school for the deaf and the blind. So I unretired, applied for the job and became principal at the school for the blind at the Colorado school for the deaf and the blind. And I'm going to guess you are probably the first black principal there too. Yes, yes, Yes. exactly. So the first black there. So you you uh, integrated the administrative staff of four different schools for the I, I did, and, and then I became the first black director of AER. AER, yes. that's right. right. Yeah, and so retired in 2019, yeah. and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. So, but a wonderful experience, wonderful experience. Lou, something that that we I talked a little bit with Michael and with Kenny about. It's a you know it's when we talk about segregated schools a lot of times in when in the blindness community we're talking about segregating sighted kids from kids that are blind or visually impaired. Do you think disability, visual impairment? Do you think it united uh, people in ways that you know? Because I mean, everybody who's who's got a disability has lots of experience of being discriminated against. Right. Yes. You you, yes. you can't do this job because you're blind, or you can't do this because you're blind. You can't. You can't. You can't. You know, there, uh, there's lots of, of stories of that demonstration. Do you think that experience somehow impacts this story of you know of uh, integration between the races at schools for the blind? 
Yes, I, I think it was a major catalyst. I really do. Uh, and the time that I was involved in schools for the blind, uh, I was certainly, you know, from a segregated system. So I knew about uh, what what integration was about. And so the, the similar kinds of things happen in the field of blindness. But the field of blindness, uh, because of the the uh, issue with public schools and schools for the blind and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and the integration of, of 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 those schools, I think was a major catalyst in 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 uh, instructors and administrators at these schools who saw how this could work in these schools. So why can't it work uh, in in the regular education system as well, Mike? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I do. It was a major catalyst. It was. Yeah. So obviously, Lou, you've you've had a, a lifetime of 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 working in in the blindness field and thinking about it, and um, you know we're living through a pretty rough patch nationally right now with uh, uh, us all realizing that maybe our our nation is not as far down the path of enlightenment as we might yes. have thought we were. Yes. Uh, what do you think the lesson of the desegregation of uh, schools for the blind, is there any lesson in that for, for us, all big us, all of us Americans yes. going, going forward? Sure. I, I think there's, there's, there's a big lesson, a major lesson uh, uh, in, in that for, for America, because if you take, a, you know, a disability uh, and, and look at what has happened you know, 1974, when uh, the law, you know, 94-142 became law that public schools could not uh, uh, keep persons with disabilities from going to public schools. There was an example right there for the nation to look at if disability can do it, and among disability people, there are those of, of, of different racial backgrounds, then why can't we as a country do the same thing? So you take schools for the blind and integration uh, of students in public schools and, and schools for the blind, you take this ability all together, put those together, look at our nation, and we should be able to do that today. We should. And the things that are happening today, uh, it's unfortunate because I go back to the Martin Luther King era, era I go back when I couldn't eat at a restaurant, couldn't go to the movies and things like that, you know, colored water fountains and bathrooms, been through all of that. And to see what has happened this last year or two, it's just so, so, uh, so hurtful that, that we as people, you know, cannot move together. And when I tell my own kids about what I lived through and where they are, they can't believe that, that uh, their dad went through a segregated system. They can't believe it. And now what they're seeing, you know, we have to work and bring this country together. We got to do what we can to keep uh, these terrible things that have happened that have caused for more uh, 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 conversation uh, uh, about how we can work together. And that's Mm -hmm. what it's going to take. Conversation between the races at all levels. Mm-hmm. And then when the conversation starts to happen and you bring everyone in from different backgrounds, I think we'll, we will begin to see America 
be the America it, it should be. Because other nations are watching us. They are. And they're talking about us. They are. And and we got to get our act together and, and be the nation that we can be, Mike. And Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Here, 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 here. Michael, I see your your uh, your uh, microphone still on. Do you have do you have any thoughts on that? I, I feel the same way. Uh, I think I think that the schools for the blind can serve as a model for how how yeah we we start out with differences, but yes we we also ended up in a good place because as as I mentioned. A lot of the relationships that we formed in school, we still have those relationships, and we still feel deeply about each other. And and so, the, the school for the what, what was that comment you made, or that that sort of uh, statement you made when you started out, Michael? You mean about the, 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 does blindness unite us in ways that? That, Something that, about the site without. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. The legislator said, uh, "Yeah, that's a good. That's a good line. We we like that line. Uh, color cool. was distinguished where no color was seen." Right. I, I like that. I like that. But but let me quickly ask ask Lou something because yes, uh, sort of sort of reminiscing when you were at the school uh, for the blind in uh, Missouri, you were probably there when. Uh, Tom Cullerton was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, Tom Cullerton. Tom Cullerton and I coached against each other, and then yeah. uh, and then I Great made coach. Tom. A, I made Tom a principal at the Missouri School. Uh, uh, Michael. Yes. And, and one of the great athletes to come out of there was George Morris. George Morris. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, when I came to the to the school there, you know, I had coached at Michigan. And and they knew about me coaching and and George Morris he confronted me in my first day at, at the school. <laughs> so there are so many stories that come out of of, of these these great uh, historic programs. It's a historical oddity that in the South that a lot of times they had programs for for black and white yeah. students. But we're going to call it we're going to call it a uh, call it a day here and turn it back over to uh, to ACB. I want to thank everybody for participating in yes. our uh, panel. Thank you. Mike. Back to Thanks, you. everyone. Thank you. OK, Thanks. thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, panel. And uh, thank you, MCAC, for co-sponsoring this with us. Um, I hope that all of you have been have enjoyed this as much as I have. Uh, I just really can't say a much at enough about how much I appreciate Jan and Kenny and Michael Garrett, and Mike Hudson, and Lou Tut for all participating in this program. You all have made this really special. Uh, the ending code for our uh, session today, the ending continuing ed code is 88320, 88320. And uh, be sure, and if you're doing this for continuing education, or for professional development, remember that you will receive, you'll be able to complete your forms online and you can do those at your convenience. You do not need to do uh, a form today and send it in. Those will all be available at the end of the week and you can begin submitting those as time uh, permits for you to do that. I just want to remind you too, that uh, if you have not done so, 
ACB Families invites you to register for ACB Families, which will make you eligible for our door prize drawings. We have lots of door prizes to give out to those who register. Um, go to your uh, registration form at uh, members.acb.org and just log in with your convention login and add on that registration that will help support ACB families. And of course, we'll put you in on all of those drawings. If you'd like more information on ACB families, feel free to give me, Carla Reshevel, ACB families president, a call at 502-897-1472. Thanks again for being here today. Thanks to all the panelists and thanks to ACB for making this time available to us.